So he called him back, say, hey, Mr. Jones, Jordan Belfort calling from uh, Investor Center. How are you doing today? He says, oh, I'm all right. Great. And if you call, you fill out a, you respond to one of our ads a few months back, uh, requesting more information on penny stocks at a huge upside potential with very little downside risk. Does that ring a bell? He goes, yeah, I think so. Great. Well, Chip, reason for the call today. Something just came across my desk. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, I'd like to share the idea with you. You got a minute, Bill? He's like, yeah, shoot. Great. Bill, now, name of the company, XYZ. It is a cutting edge, blah, blah, blah. And, the, <laughs> and that's how you do it, right? What is up, you sexy bastards? It's your boy, Malibu, a.k.a. Rabbi Can't Lose, a.k.a. Noah Kagan. This week, I had the pleasure of interviewing the real wolf of Wall Street, a.k.a. Jordan Belfort. I'm sure y'all have seen the movie. It's this crazy story of how Jordan started a company in Long Island selling penny stocks to anybody who would buy them. By the age of 26, he grew the firm into a $3 billion company and had over 1,000 brokers working for him. He lived a crazy lifestyle of money, hookers, cocaine, and quaaludes. And he ended up being tried for securities fraud and lost everything. He went to jail for two years, lost all his money, and his wife left him. After jail, he started over from scratch, and now he's back. He's written two books, one of which got turned into the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, with Leonardo DiCaprio playing him. Who do you think would play me? Or you? And Martin Scorsese directing. He got his own show and podcast, The Wolf's Den, which I was a guest on a couple of weeks ago, as well, he's built a very successful company recruiting salespeople for other businesses. Pretty interesting. If you were a fan of the movie, you will love this interview. In this conversation, you're going to enjoy three major things. Two early day entrepreneurship stories before Jordan's stockbroker days. Jordan shares his personal stories behind the scenes from the movie. And three, what part of Jordan's stock firm was a scam and what was legit? You're going to enjoy those three things plus a bunch more ear nuggets along the way. Before we jump into the conversation, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel where I release three gorgeous videos about business or marketing every single week. In one of last week's videos, I shared 10 exercises you, yes you, can use to come up with your next million dollar business idea. Go check it out at youtube.com slash okdork. Also, if you want to start a business, join monthly1k.com. We've helped over 10,000 people overcome fear and find success in their business journey. It's $7 for reals. Also, a special pre-show shout out to listener Johnny Taylor. From the UK, he left a review saying, I followed Noah for a couple of years now and loved his approach to life and work. It's a little bit more of an Australian one. But always trying to be better and prioritizing action. Get shit done. Hashtag. Johnny Taylor, you are the man from the UK. I love all your other British listeners out there. And thank you for being a listener. If you want a shout out in a future episode, just leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever the hell online. I check every single one of them. What's the crazy thing you've sold that you're like, I can't believe I've sold this? I mean, I've done stuff that no one, I've, like, I've blazed trails with certain things, like, for example, mortgages, right? Like other people, everyone was in the refi boom. Everybody was going out and selling mortgages. And it was like, you know, by telephone. And, and I went door to door and like sold mortgages and was making like $100,000 a day. So you just knock on someone's door and say, I want to refi your... If you're paying more than 8% right now, I can save you a ton of money. What rate are you paying? I'm paying 6%. Oh, okay. Well, have a great day. You know any neighbors here that might um, be paying more than percent? I don't try to convince someone that's not qual. Oh, great. Have a nice day. Next door. The whole thing. I had this with Grant. It was a card. That was the funniest thing ever. We're like, no interest is interest. No, no interest is no interest. So if someone's paying six percent, <laughs> then you're like, have a nice day. You know anybody in the area that might <laughs> like? I'm not going to try to get someone who, who you get it. It's like when you, you yeah. know, either they qualify or they don't. And the biggest mistake that rookie salespeople make is they try to take people who are not buyers and turn them into buyers. That's not what you do when you sell. When you sell, 
assuming you're working like you're a marketer, right? So you, you're an expert at generating leads, people that might be interested. And maybe because you've created a really good landing page that has a sort of salesy aspect, you're able to get them to buy up to a certain amount. Maybe it's a tripwire offer, but you end up getting these people who have either qualified, they're interested, right? Or they've bought something low priced. And the idea of a salesperson, he calls that person back. And let's say in any given marketing program, let's say 100 leads, let's just say that just leads come in, right? So all leads are not created equal. There's different categories. As I was researching and you learning more about you, it was really phenomenal that you went from ice cream selling to meat selling to the stock market and refinancing. So I think where I was curious is that jump, the inflection between selling meat door-to-door. So what, how did you go from selling meat door-to-door to selling stocks and finance and things like that? What was that story? So well, the ice cream, just remember, there's a very big difference between you know ice cream selling was, was I was a 16-year-old kid. I was a hustler and I was going blanket to blanket and saying, hey, you know, I want Italian ices, chip witches, fudgicles. Someone raised their hand, I'd run over and sell. That's not sales. That's like saying the person that works behind the, the cashier at 7-Eleven is a salesperson. It's <laughs> transactional sales. You get it? It's not selling. Yeah. That was hard work and ingenuity and entrepreneurship. It wasn't a sale, so to speak. And maybe if the, you know, the, way, I, I, the way, hey, would you like an extra Milky Way? <laughs> maybe that was the sales <laughs> part. But for the most part, it wasn't really selling. The meat and seafood was absolutely pure sales. And that was my first real you know, job where I got out there out of college and sold and made all the other stuff in college and to make extra money. But mostly my big thing was I made a lot of money selling the ice cream blanket to blanket. It was ridiculous how much money I made, right? Back in the 70s, I was making more than anyone of my parents in my neighborhood. I was making twenty five, thirty thousand $30,000 during the summer, two months, right? It was a lot of money back then. Meat and seafood, I'd get in a little pickup truck, like a Toyota pickup truck with a wooden freezer box on the back. And I'd knock on people's doors cold calling home to home. Hi, my name's Jordan. I'm a meat broke. I, I deliver meat and seafood to some of your neighbors in the area. I got some extra boxes on the truck. I'll give you a really good deal. Shut up. That's it. And then they would say, not interested, not interested. Not, well, then, well, what do you got? Oh, hold on. I'll be right back. And I run to my truck, grab eight boxes and come in. I'd really walk in their house, drop the boxes on the floor, get on my knees. I was 21 years old with like, it looked like I was 12. Okay, great. Now, and I just start presenting. I was like, you know, assume the sale and present my meat and seafood to them. And I just close them. Yeah. And I was the top salesperson in, in the country doing that. I mean, like the first day I broke the company record, just shattered it. And then the first week I destroyed it. And then I opened up my own meat and seafood company two weeks later, well, four weeks later. And then uh, started with one truck, built it to 26 trucks. What were you doing then every other differently than every other salesperson? I think that uh, combination of I sounded much better than them. And I worked much harder than they did. I was a little bit more ingenious in how I worked, like working smart, not just hard. But mostly I just sounded so much better. And I just was knew how to, and I had a gift to close. And I just intuitively know, knew what to say, how to say it, when to say it. And, you know, there's a sort of sweet spot. Ultimately, you know, it didn't occur to me how really proficient I was at selling until I got to Wall Street, when I so I, I, I did it, I broke this company record, right, in meat and seafood. Then I, I mean, they, the average guy was selling four or five boxes a day. I was selling 40 boxes a day. It was like profoundly different, right? And then um, what happened was over that first week, I closed, it was like 240 boxes. And the average guy was closing 25 to 30, right? So they started sending their drivers out with me. It was like 20 drivers in the uh, in the area. And Everyone in the office started doing more because they just saw me do. I created a different level, right? Then I started my own company and I started training salespeople to go out door to door. And that was, I was 21. And that was really when I started to realize, wow, I really have this ability to train salespeople. This is before I invented the straight line system. It's just me intuitively 
training salespeople how to sound good, right? And if you would have asked me at that point, why, how do you close such a high level? I would have said, I don't know, I'm just, I'm a great salesman. Like, I don't know, I just say what they need to hear, right? Like, I, I hadn't broken it down. Then maybe about it, six months in when I trained the first 20 or 30 people that worked for me, I would have said, oh, it's about tonality. You have to sound good. You have to make good eye. I had some sorts of stuff to refine the techniques I was using. And then over about, you know, about a year of doing that too. So I, I really kind of come up with my own way of training salespeople. And it was very reliant on tonality, on what words you would say and so forth, right? And then, and also playing the numbers game, hard work, the inner game of success, you know, mindset for success. There was a lot, I started reading a lot of books on it, right? Then my business went bankrupt. My meat and seafood company went bankrupt. It was the stupidest business in the world. And as stupid as the business was, I was stupid the way I ran it. Like I just made every mistake a young entrepreneur can make. I was overexpanding. I was undercapitalized. I was growing on credit. I made every mistake you can make. And I went bankrupt, right? How old are you? 23. So I had 26 trucks by that time, a big company, right? And then um, I had heard a rumor about a friend of mine who was not that sharp growing up. It's like that weird kid in the neighborhood. You know, the weird kid no one to play with, that was him, right? <laughs> and I go, yeah, Michael went down to Wall Street. He's making a million dollars a year as a stockbroker. I was like, a million dollars? It's impossible. That's 1986. It was impossible, right? That was 20000 a week. I was, had $5 in my pocket. My best week, I'd made maybe $2,000, a million dollars a year. Sure enough, about two weeks later, now I'm bankrupt right now. The local park, we all hang out. He comes driving up in a red Ferrari. He's got a gorgeous blonde model in the car. I'm like, I want the Ferrari. I want the model. I'm like, I'm like Michael, what are you doing? He goes, I'm a stockbroker. I made a million too last year. Think about stockbrokers. They'll always tell you what they made. They're like, oh, I made a million bucks. <laughs> right? <laughs> Ask a doctor, what do you mean what did I make last year? <laughs> so anyway, so, so um, he says, I made, I made two million next year. And I said to myself, what well, you have probably said to yourself more than one time in your life. I said, if this idiot can make a million too, I'll make 10. And that was it. In that moment, I said, I am going to become a stockbroker. I don't know how I will. So I went home. I was married to wife number one back then, a bunch of wives ago. I've done that well in the wife department, right? And we said, you know, that's it. I'm going to be a stockbroker. And I actually went down to Wall Street and I just had to sell myself a job. My resume was not looking too good. I just declared bankruptcy. I was a dental school dropout because I'd spent one day in dental school, believe it or not, right? But I went into this interview just like the movie. And, you know, I started pitching the guy his stock like, during an interview. I didn't even know what I was saying. I was like, Mr. Jones, believe me, I started just whatever. I forgot what I said, but I, and the guy's like, whoa, whoa, geez, stop. I never heard anyone like you. He goes, either one of two things are going to happen to you. Either you're going to become the most famous stockbroker in Wall Street history, or you're going to end up in jail. Well, the guy was a genius. He was right on both accounts, <laughs> right? So he hired me. It was a big firm, L.F. Rothschild, big member, New York Stock Exchange firm. I walked into the boardroom the first day, and I just heard the mighty roar of a, of a Wall Street boardroom with everyone cursing and yelling and pitching, and I was hooked. And I, I knew I could do the job, but I had to go about six months to get my, pass my test. That, yet they tortured you, you know, be a cold caller. So for about five or six months, I just sat there, and I was passing the phone to this guy named Mark Hanna from the movie, the Matthew McConaughey character, and others too. And I just would listen, and I started noticing that Mark was amazing. Mark was a great salesman with great tonality, and I started noticing how he was the top producer. And it really was interesting, because it gave me this idea to see what sounds good, what doesn't, and why is he closing? And like a lot of these guys that were being overly analytical, and they just weren't connecting with the people in the right way, they'd still make money, and they made a few hundred grand a year, but Mark was making over a million. So when finally my first day came, and I passed the, the test, I was like ready to just paint the world on fire. I knew I had what it took, right? Everyone did. I, was, I sounded great in my little training sessions they were giving, right? 
And then I walked into my first day and it was October 19th, 1987, Black Monday. <laughs> and I watched in shock and awe as the market crashed, went down 508 points in a single day. And just like that, LF Rothschild, which was in business for 100 years out of business, you know, shut its doors. I was out of a job and no one on Wall Street was hiring. Was the, everyone thought it was going to be the next Great Depression, right? And um, that's how I ended up in this small penny stock firm because the firm I was with shut down and I couldn't afford to make the commute into the city. I was living in Queens at the time. And I answered a blind ad in the newspaper. It says, you know, stockbroker, part-time, full-time. It's like, part-time? I didn't even know you could be a part-time stockbroker, right? I walked into this company, this little, just like the movie. And I was like, what the hell is this? It was like a, where, it was like a, like a, on a strip mall, like office mall, like a two-level office building. And I walked in and I was appalled. There wasn't one thing in this office that reeked of wealth, success, or Wall Street. It's like they were selling penny stocks. I didn't even, I did not know what a penny stock was. I was trained in how to sell big New York stock exchange stocks back then, like Eastman Kodak, IBM, Microsoft, right? And now, you know, I was like, these are pink sheets, like penny stocks. And, and when they show me the commission structure, if someone sends in a hundred grand, I keep 50,000 commission. It was 50% commission. I couldn't believe it. So he goes, well, it's the managers. It doesn't really work that way. We, people don't invest like that in penny stocks. They just put in a few hundred dollars in, $500,000 tops. These are all just average moms and pops who don't call rich people. So I'm like, why? He said, rich people don't buy penny stocks. And at the time he said that, I was like, mm, I don't know if that was true or not. It didn't ring true because people love to speculate, rich people especially. But I was so poor. I'm like, all right, well, just can, I, can you hire me? Give me the leads. I couldn't pay my rent. So I, he gave me a job and he gave me a bunch of these poor people leads of like people that sent in these index cards back then of, you know, they wanted to find out more about stocks. And, and I wrote out, I looked at the companies they had, the scripts, and I picked what I considered to be the dog with the least fleas. I wrote this pitch out. I remember this, like it was yesterday, I wrote this script out and the guy sitting to my right, it's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm writing out a script. Said, you don't need that. Just tell them the stock's going up. I'm like, thanks for sharing it, you know, whatever. So I wrote, it took about an hour or two to write this perfect script out. Sounded really good. I got on the phone. The first call, first time I picked up the phone to call and I pitched this stock. It's called Arncliffe National, right? And as I was making my pitch, I knew I sounded real. The words were coming out like just, I had a real God-given talent for this stuff, right? And the words was flowing out perfectly. And the whole room, like I could say, what's going on here? And I looked around, everyone's like holding, record. everyone had stopped and they crowded around me and the manager was running with a tape recorder to, to listen to me pitch, right? So I was like, whatever, I'm like, I'm trying to ignore it. And I ended up closing this guy for $5,000, which is like the biggest penny stock trade in history of this company, right? And when I hung up the phone, they're like, how'd you do that? Like, we never heard anything like that. Like, it was so profoundly different than they had been. They were like, hey, you got to buy the stock. And I was like speaking in technical Wall Street terms because I had had the benefit of hearing how Wall Street was running. So I sort of could see both worlds. So I took that sort of approach I had heard there and, and applied it to this penny stock world. And the first month, I like I just shattered the company record for penny stocks, became this top penny stockbroker in the country. And then um, within two months, the manager approached me, goes, hey, buddy, listen, I've never heard anybody sell like you. And also, I was already training now, like all the kids were coming to me to, how do you, how do, you do that? I was trying to train, so I'd give these little training sessions. I wasn't making money from them, just I was trying to help them out, right? And I had my little following like that had developed around me. And after two months, he said, hey, you know, let's open up our own company. I'll do all the investment banking. You can do all the sales training. We'll make a fortune. 
So we went to see this lawyer and we got to this law firm as a little local law firm. The guy's name was Lester Morse. We used to call him Lester Remorse because he was the most negative guy ever, right? And after the meeting, I quickly realized like this guy, knew the manager knew nothing. And I was like dominating the meeting because I, I had learned so much because you learn so much from failing. So that failure I had in the meat business, it turned me into like, I was like Harvard Business School for me. Like when you fail, you just like, for me, it was like, now I knew how to run a business. So I made so many mistakes the first time. So this time when I, you know, when I sat in this meeting, I quickly realized this guy was, knew nothing. The, uh, the guy wouldn't be a pause. I threw him out that night. I got a call. There was a few people in that meeting. And one of them was this guy named Mike Valinotti, who's what I call an old Wall Street war dog. He'd been around since the fifties, even before there was computers. He was an expert in the back office operations. And he, go, he said to me, listen, because I got to tell you, I was so impressed. Uh, what you said today, like just your instincts and the way you speak, you're a young guy. I'd be happy to work for free for you for the first year in August and get you started if you give me like, you know, uh, 5% of the, of the profits. So I said, wow, that's really nice. I said, I'll tell you what I'll do. I said, I'll give you 5% up to $300,000. Let's say uh, whatever this. So if he, 300000 if I made $6 million, he'd make, he'd be tapped out basically, right? And he's like, Pfft. You'll never come So on. at this point, you have no job. You have no money coming in. You're living in Queens. First wife, maybe yeah. first wife. And you still have, you had nothing at this point. No, I broke all the records in, in the penny stock. Oh, world. but is that I the was making a hundred grand a month? Okay, so the penny stock company started taking off. You're making a ton of money. A ton doing of money. That. Made it the first month. They made eighty grand for yourself. Yeah, myself. What'd your wife say? What'd you say? It happened so fast. Like I went to this, I went in this escalator up. Like I broke the record. So the first month, my check was like eighty, and then month four I was making north of a hundred thousand a month. I went from having no money to being completely liquid. I had beautiful Jaguars buying my wife presents and we were living great. We moved to the penthouse of this little building we were in, right? It was a nice yuppie building. Had a, maybe it saved maybe 400, 300 grand in cash right now in my bank account. That was the, where I was financially at the moment that I decided to start Stratton. And I, you know, so he offered, you know, it was a 5% with a, this $300,000 cap, right? And he was like, he laughed because uh, he goes, great, done. He's like, because he never thought I'd make more than $6 million in a year. I was like, you get it? Like, it seemed impossible, right? So what happened was I, st I started my firm. And it was about 12 people that I took from this small firm. And old friends of mine came to from work for me. From the penny firm? A few, I took a few, like three or four from the penny stock firm that, um, in that office. And then um, old friends of mine, I told them what I was doing, so they came to work for me. What happened to that Mike guy, the million-dollar stockbroker dude that first inspired you? Oh, he, did, he ended up doing really well. So Michael... He ended up opening up his own firm. I actually went down and trained his people one day. His whole story. He's a, he a nice guy. His name is Michael Falk. And he, did, he owned a company called Commonwealth Securities. He, opened, he worked for, at the time he was working for D.H. Blair, making a million bucks. Blair was like an early Stratton, like sort of, they were doing it before me, but not in the same way. They were doing like those $5 stocks, but not in an organized way like I did. So you were doing penny stocks? No. So when you started Stratton, what was your, what was your approach? Started with penny stocks. So I started the, with calling average moms and pops. And we were selling penny stocks. And so is the call just like, hey, we have the stock. What was, do you remember any of the script? Well, the penny stock world, they, they were calling, of course I remember the script. So the penny stock world, people would um, send you in. It was like, you get these incoming leads. There were cards that people had filled out. They responded like, hey, find out how to get rich in penny stocks, right? And, you know, get more information. They fill out a card back then. And it was like, now, like, same thing, people fill out a lead in Facebook. Same thing, right? It's the equivalent to that. So you call him back and say, hey, Mr. Jones, Jordan Belfort calling from uh, Investor Center. How are you doing today? He says, oh, I'm all right. Great. And if you call, you fill out a, you respond to one of our ads a few months back, uh, requesting more information on penny stocks that a huge upside potential with very little downside risk. Does that ring a bell? He goes, yeah, I think so. Great. Well, Chip, reason for the call today. Something just came across my desk. It is perhaps the best thing I've seen in the last six months. If you have 60 seconds, 
I like to share the idea with you. You got a minute, Bill? He's like, yeah, shoot, great, Bill. Now, name of the company, XYZ. It is a cutting edge, blah, blah, blah. And, the, <laughs> and that's how you do it, right? That was good. And, that was, and then, that was good. and then, um, well, I could give you the whole script. For I wrote the script for the movie. That whole thing was that's a cutting edge high tech firm out of the Midwest, awaiting imminent patent approval on the next generation of radar detectors that have huge military and civilian applications. Here's my money. Now, take take right my money, now, <laughs> Right now, the stock's trading at ten cents a share. We think it goes a heck of a lot higher. That you'll profit on them. Yeah, ten thousand dollar investment. <laughs> I know the whole thing. So take take a step back. One thing I just well, I want we want to keep going forward. One thing I want to highlight, I think, for the listeners, sometimes. There's so much golden nuggets in what you're talking about. I think one, your memory is phenomenal. You have a recall that's really impressive. I have, I have a, a, a photograph. Memory. You have a very impressive memory. I don't know if people are realizing like this is from 1986. This is over 30 years ago. Two, I like that you did the script. I think a lot of people in life as they're approaching businesses, they're winging it. And the fact that you're like, I'm going to put something together around that. And the third thing that you that you talked about earlier is the Matthew McConaughey character, Mark Hanna. I think you called him. Is that yeah. the, the guy's name? One thing that you did, and I think a lot of people, including myself, don't do this enough, is like, who's the best? What are they doing differently? Right. And what can I learn from them to apply in other things? Absolutely. Or apply? And That's so how I always do it, right? And whenever I go, whenever I get hired by a company, my business now is I, companies hire me to recruit and train. So I essentially, someone said, I want 50 salespeople. So I'll go out and use my brand to recruit and train them. But I'll always say, I need to hear what you're taught to train them. Show me your top three guys. That's cool. Or girls. I want to I hear what they say and model them, come up with the best version of all of them combined. That's how I always do it. Yeah. I love it. Well, I want to I stay with the Stranton. Mm -hmm. So you started, you have 12 people. Does it just keep exploding? No. So what happens is I'm, I'm selling penny stocks to average moms and pops. But it didn't, I thought you were already doing 100000 a month. I figured you'd do even more than that as you started your own. No, but yes, so now I'm at Stratton now, but now I own the company. So I have these 12 guys working for me and we're all selling penny stocks to average moms and pops, right? So I'm now still a stockbroker, but a lot of my time now is spent more on a, as a manager than as a salesperson. I'm still selling, but I'm also managing and giving these meetings and I'm teaching them how to sell penny stocks to average moms and pops, which was a very easy sale comparatively. I mean, like, you know, it was more of an impulse sale, they'd invest $500 and the kids were doing great. They were making about $10,000 a month on average, right? And I was making well over a hundred at this point, right? About two months into it, I am lying in bed and I'm like, boom, the light bulb goes off. I'm like, wait a second. I'm like, why are we calling moms and pops? We should be calling rich people. Like when I was on Wall Street, when a rich person you know, would buy, they'd buy a million bucks worth of stock. Why am I selling stock $500 at a time? I'm going to sell rich people. Maybe they won't buy a million, they'll buy $100,000 of a penny stock. And I'll make 50,000 in one trade and I'll be the richest guy in town. So I tried that. And to my surprise, it didn't work. They would not buy penny stocks. They would not buy them. So I thought about that. I said, okay, well, maybe they think, you know, the price is 10 cents. It must be a piece of shit, right? So I did something called the reverse split. So you can easily take a stock that's 10 cents and make it $5. You do a one for 50 reverse split. So there's less outstanding shares and the price is higher. It's the same company. So I said, maybe they'll like the stock better at five. It's like just, you know, $5 seems like it must be better than 10 cents, right? So I tried that and that didn't work either. That surprised me. I got a slightly better result, but definitely not good enough that it would be something you could build a system around, right? So I was thinking, dear Jim, I don't get this. You know, I, I'm Steve. So even myself, like I'm so good at sales, but even I couldn't close a rich person on a $5 stock they never heard about on a cold call. And that's when it hit me and I realized what was happening. And that really led to, ultimately the creation of the straight line many a month later. But 
I said, you know what? When I was calling from LF Rothschild, you're at the Rothschild Bank, one of the most venerable names in banking history. I'm selling them Eastman Kodak or IBM, a name recognition, so they know the firm, they know the stock, but they just don't know me. So I have two in my favor, one against. Now I'm calling from Stratton Securities, which no one ever heard of, selling them Price of His Toys, which no one ever heard of. And my name is Jordan Belfort. They never heard of me. So it's three strikes and you're out. I need to tip the odds in my favor. So rather than trying to sell them a stock they never heard of, let me start by selling Eastman Kodak, something they had heard of, and use it as a loss leader. So that's number one. Number two, rather than trying to say I'm from Stratton Securities and we specialize in penny stocks, I would say I came up with an entirely new rap that used a justifier, a rash saying, you know, you might not have heard of Stratton because for the last 10 years, we were strictly an institutional trading firm dealing with a select group of banks and trading companies. And the reason we've recently opened up our doors to the more substantial private investor like yourself, Jim, all I want to do right now is send you out some information on my company and then get back to you next time recommendation recommendation to all our clients. Does that sound fair enough? You say, yeah, sure, send it out. Now, that was true. That's not a lie. That was the truth. I didn't start Stratton. Stratton had been in business for 10 years as a trading firm going from banks and brokers, just trading. All right. So what I did was I came up with this really clever way that wasn't lying. I said, you know, for the last 10 years, Stratton was strictly a trading firm dealing with a select group of banks. I languaged it in a way that made it sound amazing, but it wasn't a lie. It was actually true, but it was the best version of that truth. You get it? And then I'd say, but I just want to send you out some information right now. And that was that, right? So then what we did is we sent them out. We had nothing to send them because we were, you know, because, you know, there was no brochure. <laughs> so rather than just sending them anything that would be a lie, I just sent them a big, thick book saying how to make money in stocks, right? They had nothing to do with what we were doing. Just a big, thick book and a letter saying, great speaking to you. Take this with my compliments, how to make money in common stocks. Hope to speak to you again soon. We're making a recommendation to our clients, right? Done. Call them back seven days later and you say, hey, uh, Mr. Jones there. Now you would be able to, this helped you get through the secretary because Oh, it's the guy who sent you the book. They felt bad, right? So now that created enough reciprocity to get through the assistant to the business owner. We now are only calling the wealthiest 1%. I only was calling now the wealthiest 1%. American business owners, right? They were worth over a million dollars back then. It was more than it was there, right? So now you guy, yeah, hey, how you doing, Bill? And you get on the phone. If you recall, we spoke last week. I sent you out that book, How to Make Money. He goes, yeah, oh, thanks. Oh, great. Now, Jim, reason for the call. Something just came across my desk. So the same exact pitch, more or less. But now you but have now, but now I say, then, then I say, name of the company, Eastman Kodak, blue chip company you know real well. Now I'm pitching them Kodak, something they heard of. There's a reason why they haven't heard of Stratton. I turned it into a positive. We were strictly an institutional firm. And all of a sudden, bam, I'm opening up massive accounts in Kodak, hundreds of them. Like the first week between my partner, Danny, we had a junior partner, Danny, the Jonah Hill character. We opened up probably 20, 30 accounts in the first week, right? So we didn't make any money on that because on a trade of 500 shares of Kodak was 20 grand, maybe made $100, right? Not a lot of money, right? But the plan was now you'd call them back week two and now you'd make some calls in the middle call schmooze calls. Hey, just give me an update on Kodak. So where's Kodak? It's in one of three places, right? It's up, down, or even. The stock's up. You say, listen, Good news, Kodak is up a touch, but listen, the long-term thesis remains intact. We had a whole story about why it was going to go up. If the stock was even, listen, build stocks right where we bought it, but things look great over the long term. If the stock's down, such build stocks down 2%, no big deal. 
long-term pieces. You get, it didn't matter. You're just giving a touch point, right? Then you call them back seven days later after that check, they had seven days to pay. Hey, Bill, you know, how's it going? Great. Two reasons for the call. Number one, I want to update you on Kodak. Give him a quick update on Kodak. It was either up, down, or even. Didn't really matter. Second reason, Bill, something else just came across my desk. It's a bit different in nature, more speculative, but it's a company we know where we are the investment banker. Got 60 seconds I want to share with you. Got a minute? He's like, yeah, go ahead. Now he's your broker. That was my idea. And then you'd pitch him this $6 stock, not a penny stock, a $6 stock, right? So Danny and I start executing this, right? Well, we have all these people that bought Kodak, and then he's cold calling his leads. I'm cold calling my do a second trade into the $6 stock. And I see Danny gets the first connect, right? Just got one right away. So I put the phone and I'm watching him and I'm watching. So Danny's like in the corner. I'm in an office and 11 other brokers who are still selling penny stocks. I had Danny, I was trying to crack the code while they were still selling penny stocks. So after about two or three minutes, Danny puts down the phone and he has like this kind of weird look on his face and he walks over. I'm like, what happened? He goes, the guy bought $120,000 worth and apologized for working so small. And in that moment, I knew. I was like, Eureka, I cracked the code of how to go out and find. It was just such a, a massive shift because you start with a big stock. So you were perceived as being a, from a big regular firm, right? So they now trust you, okay? And the idea was now to sell them these more speculative stocks. They're still good. You, it wasn't like they were being lied. No, they knew it was speculative. Rich people love to speculate. It made sense. The whole thing made sense. So the guy who was giving us money was also speculating at Goldman Sachs, Merrill. And she was getting destroyed all over Wall Street. He was super rich. That was our client. They were really rich. They were losing money everywhere. They didn't care. Sometimes they make money. Didn't, you understand the nature of Wall Street is like, it was no different. When I was at LF Rothschild, the clients were getting destroyed. They're always losing the client, the retail clients. They get killed because the brokers are churning. And it's, it was really, that was the nature of the game back then. So we were doing was no different than them. Now, ultimately, we went haywire, but that was the thesis and it worked. So what I did was that in that moment, I said to the guys, I said, everyone, stop, put down your phones. New program. We're no longer calling any poor people, only calling the richest 1%. And I'm going to teach you guys how to do that. And I tried to use my system to teach them. And a month later, they hadn't closed one sale. And that was the problem. So what happened was I developed this incredible system for getting to a rich person, selling them a stock, making tons of money, but I could do it. Danny could do it. And none of the other kids can do it because I was a natural born closer. And so was Danny. I had trained Danny, but he was a natural born closer. The other kids were not strong enough and after a month of trying, they had not closed a single account. So watch what's happening. I'm doing it, calling the same people, same list of people, selling the same stock, using the same pitch. I'm now closing 50%. I'm making hundreds of thousands a month. They're at zero. I'm like, what is going on? So what happened was, in the end of the day, my it turned out that like just my, the system that I was using to train them wasn't good enough. It broke down. I thought it was good. It wasn't good enough get them to close rich people. And I tried every other system out there. I went to trainings. I flew across the country. I tried everything to get these 12 kids to close. They couldn't do it until one day, you know, out of desperation, I had this nighttime marathon sales training session. And I looked at these kids. I'm like, what's so hard, guys? I don't get, they want to stop and sell penny stocks. Again. And that drove me crazy. So, uh, you know, after about five or six minutes, I looked at these guys. I'm like, you know, don't you guys get it? This is so simple. I'm like, Watch, every sale's the same. And something popped in my head and I drew this long, thin, straight line on the center of the board. 
and I put a big thick X on either end. I said, this is your open where the sale begins. This is your close where the client says, yeah, let's do it. And from literally the first word out of your mouth, you have to be, and something happened. And I just, and that straight line that I drew, it just opened up this whole entire different way of looking at how to close a sale. And over the next four hours, this, it was like, almost like I was channeling. I felt like I was channeling knowledge. Like it was like, I was saying things I never thought of before, never heard, never said, just like I was making up a system of what I really was doing was it I occurred to me what I was doing. And I was unpacking my own way of how from the time I was a little kid, I was such a great talker, closer, and always broke all the records wherever I was. I was unpacking that system. And I essentially came up with this methodology using the straight line as the context of like, this is your open, this yeah. is your close. And there's something about that line. So you got 12 guys, you finally inspire them. Let's jump a little bit forward to what, describe to me the business at its peak of money and of craziness, of parties, of, of what was that? At the peak was probably 94, you know, where we were like, I mean, I was making um, one day, like a, any given day, I could make 15 million bucks in a day. For yourself? To myself. Yep. New issue day, make 15, 20 million, sometimes even more on a particular day. And just, it was absolute, man, thousands of people in the boardroom. The boardroom was like the Roman Coliseum. There was acts of depravity going on. There was hookers, oh, was hookers like, in the basement. You know, there was no yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. There was, you know, there was all, a lot of the stuff that was happening at Stratton wasn't even sponsored. I wasn't, I didn't get hookers. To, it wasn't like, hey, let's get hookers in there to make it more convenient. It was just some <laughs> enterprising young kid there. He had a father that worked in like the, in the mob down in, in uh, Little Italy. And they said, hey, let's, hey, I hear where you're working. Why don't we just get a van down there? And so they shipped a van of girls down there. And they go, and during lunch, and you guys go down for blowjobs all day, you know, down in the van in the basement, you know? When they're doing a bunch of drugs in the office? Of course. I mean, that was, it was Stratton was fueled on drugs and sex and insanity. What's some of the crazier stories or moments from that period? There's so many. I mean, you said it was a daily drug Addled insanity of this like bachelor parties and we used to have these things called slug fests we called them at night like after the day we worked hard and parted hard we'd go out we'd rent like a gigantic room in the city like the Helmsley Palace back then the Trump Plaza whatever it was Trump got um, hotel you know it was the plaza back then and we would just like destroy like have 50 hookers and 100 brokers and destroy the place and then pay and then do it again a week later they didn't care yeah we don't care we just run. just play and do it again yeah it was wild what was your wildest night of partying or wildest day or night? It was just constant. It was just, I was always high and recovering and I had great recovery capacity. So, you know, we, you know, we used to say, if you're going to go out with the boys, you got to wake up with the men. That was our, our philosophy, you know? So that was what we did. You know, we worked really hard all day. And then at nighttime, we just go absolutely apes into the city. And it was, I can't believe it. Like, Cause now I'm just, I'm, I'm a very calm guy now. Like I stay home almost all the time. We used to go out six nights a week and just go wild. Like wild. What's wild? I'm curious to hear a little more of the wild. Yeah, it's, you know, bags of cocaine, quaaludes, hookers, strippers, and just gambling. You're, just, you're constantly going to Atlantic City because it was close to us and uh, just losing millions, winning millions, uh, just insanity, you know? How much of the movie depiction of that was is accurate versus like like crashing the car and then the yacht? Yeah, no, the, the car crash is 100% accurate, just like that. The only difference, it wasn't a Lamborghini, it was a Mercedes. I had a Lamborghini at the time, but it wasn't that, that car I happened to take that night. And um, the yacht was much worse than that. The sinking of the yacht was much worse. It wasn't so much like the rescue was great. They lowered someone down from a helicopter, plucked us off the 
yeah, it was really wild. What was it like now? Because now you're sober as well. How's it to watch that now? To watch a movie? Because I think all of us want to watch a movie of our lives and see how we were. But you're actually seeing like, this was you at this time period. I love the first two hours of the movie. I don't like the last hour. <laughs> the last hour starts to get really bad for me, you know? So like, I was like, oh, yeah, let's watch it on tight, honey. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> Any other things that came up from watching it? Well, I mean, you, you know, it never stops being weird when you hear, you know, someone else like, uh, you, know, was, you know, obviously Leo was famous. Someone says, hi, I'm Jordan Belfort. It's still funny to hear that. Like when someone else is saying your name on camera like that. It's really funny. I mean, like, you know, I was watching Jerry Maguire the other night, which is a movie that I love, by the way, right? And there's a funny line there. He goes, it was just a mission statement. He writes this mission statement and this like thing about, you know, less clients, less money, more personal care. And, and that this mission statement he writes in a moment of clarity where, you know, it just sort of takes his life on a course that's just like he never thought it would. Like it becomes like sort of the center theme of everything that's happening is this mission statement. And he keeps saying it was just the mission statement. Like, you know, for me, it was like, you know, it was just the book I wrote. The book, I wrote this book. I never thought this would happen. So when like, you know, it amounts to like a movie and uh, around the world, it's a cult. It's a massive cult hit. So it's not like a, a regular movie. It's different. It, it just never stops. It just keeps going on and on and gets bigger every year. The songs about it and just um, people dress up as me. And, and it's, you know, and I'm, I'm appreciative that everyone like, you know, loves the movie. It's just interesting when it's like, because it's not like um, a normal movie. Like movies usually come and go, right? This one never so left. <laughs> well, I think what, what one of the things that I was reflecting on is, is you're talking about is just that there's a lot of young people and probably older people too that are like the money and the partying and the men and women and, and the, the excitement is what they imagine they want. It was great. You know, and they say, oh, he's Scorsese. He glamorized it. He glamorized it. That's not good. Well, he didn't glamorize it. It's just glamorous. He didn't glamorize anything. It's glamorous. That doesn't mean it's good or bad. It just is what it is. In other words, Marty Scorsese's brilliance is his ability to tell a story without judgment. And he lets the people watching it judge for themselves. This is what I love about the movie and what I hate about so many other movies where one thing I hate is I don't want to be spoon-fed morality during a movie. I want to watch a movie. I don't want to be telegraphed by some obvious device to make me feel a certain way about a character. I like to develop my own conclusions and see how things really happen and then feel how I want to feel versus being spoon-fed morality in a movie. I guess the as you're making 15 million in a day, which is more than people make in their lifetimes, I guess one question I was wondering, was it lonely or was it empty? Because you said, yeah, it was glamorous, but was that empty? Was it lonely? You know, well, I wouldn't say it was lonely. You know, I was lonely surrounded by, by a thousand of my best friends, you know? Not lonely, but... I felt like I was on an island unto myself. Like those, it, it got to a point where it turned evil, right? Where Stratton was supposed to be this like you know egalitarian utopia, meritocracy, you know, where where young kids can come and rise to the top. It was never meant to be illegal, and it wasn't in any way at all. It just was not. It was not my intention. We didn't want people to lose money. I expected people would lose money and make money because that's Wall Street, and that was happening all over Wall Street. Like, you know, people were losing money all over because of retail stockbrokers churning and burning. That was the way it was. And it's very much like that today. A lot of places, as you saw in 2008, I was saying it all along. And then it turned out that it was true. It was like, oh, my God, it was right. Wall Street was insane. And in 2008, they almost bankrupted the world because of it. Right. But what it was more than anything was there was, was a time I felt like it was bigger than me. And I couldn't I was on a ship. I couldn't get off it. Like, in other words, when I saw it turning to the dark side, 
there was a time I, I noticed it happening and it was like two years in and it just was getting so big and it was getting so, I no longer had the ability to really mat. It was just unwieldy. It was thousands of people and everyone was making so much money. Like I hit, I had hit on this two prong thing. One was I taught these kids how to close, like I had invented a system for closing the straight line. That allowed kids that would have never been able to be successful before in the world of sales to be as great at selling as the, a natural born closer. Close the gap between people who weren't born as salespeople to those who wanted to be. It made it real. You want to be a great salesman, you learn the system, you can become an expert salesperson. It didn't exist. That opened up the possibility for anyone to take advantage of this niche I uncovered, this $5 to the richest 1%. So those two things together created this like weird convergence of events where this one little office in Long Island ended up becoming like, almost like a, its own little boom town with a gold rush where anyone could come from all over the country, come to this little office and it just and become rich. How much did you guys generate at peak? Like how much did you guys total generate? Well, in transactions, we were probably doing a five or six billion a year, maybe more in transactions, probably a lot more actually, because you know, you're buying and selling all the time. So, you know, remember there's like, there's commissions being paid to, um, generate 300 million in commissions, you might do 20 billion in transactions. So you guys were taking on 300 million? No, well, I'm talking about commissions, like yeah. net commissions at the end of the day, you know, hundreds of millions, yeah. Did you have to give all that back? Yeah, well, my, I, gave, I started over again in 2001. When did it become a scam or what part was actually the part that you got busted for? for smuggling money to Switzerland. Oh. That was what, <laughs> no, I got, I didn't get busted for the stock stuff. Because the stock stuff wasn't so terrible. Listen, it was, I mean, yeah, there was something I was doing that was bad. It was one, I was manipulating, it was one little moment in there where we were like, you know, I, I was manipulating, um, how to explain it. The simplest way is that, like, you know, there's certain rules on Wall Street. You're not allowed to buy new issues if you own a brokerage firm. So I was giving large blocks of new issues to close friends and buying them back on these prearranged deals. That's not legal. And everyone was doing it on Wall Street. I didn't invent this. It's still happening today. I didn't invent it, all right? But I took it to a different level and you know, things you can't do when you're really big. So, but that's not what I got in trouble for. I got in trouble for smuggling money to Switzerland and I played guilty for things. I said, yeah, I did this too and that too. And I agree. And I, you know, it's part when you plead guilty, you do that. But I didn't get in trouble for that. I got in trouble for smuggling money to Switzerland. This is going to be weird. But were you happy you got caught? Were you happy for no, it to stop? No, no. Anyone that says they're happy they get caught, it's a liar. Okay, of course, I'm, now I'm happy I got caught. Today I'm happy. Now, today I'm, I'm thankful I got caught. And the FBI is a good friend of mine. I love the guy. You know, Agent Coleman's a really great guy. We're friends. I'm friends with the U.S. attorney that indicted me, that was on my case, Dan Alonzo, great, another great guy. I was miserable I got caught at the time. Why would anyone want to get caught? I think sometimes we want it to end or it's like we want to get out of this and it's hard for us to pull I the was court. already out of it. I was already out of it for a year and a half. So I already walked away and then the wheels of justice you know, caught up with me. So I was already doing something entirely different. So I was already out of it at the time. And wh where were you living? What was your lifestyle like? Just to give people, I think people want to hear about the house or a car at that moment. Well, I mean, I was you know, living in a massive seven acre estate in, um, you know, seven acres is a lot of property in Long Island. Gated community with guards on it and uh, a zillion cars and every, you name it, you know, the, you know, the yacht had already sunk, but I was still, still chartering <laughs> and, uh, you know, private planes and just, you know, 10 servants and, you know, everything it was just a pure, uh, like, you know, the ultimate, like, way you would see people live on TV that had massive sums of money. But it was already, I was sober, though, for about, it was already about 18 months sober. So, like, the insanity, the wildness had stopped, though. What did your parents say? Well, my dad worked for me. 
He saw the whole thing happen from uh, the beginning, like almost from day one. He couldn't believe it. He, didn't, he had no idea of any of this stuff involving the stocks. He wasn't involved in the stock side. My dad was a CFO. He only dealt with overhead and paying bills. He was great for that. So did he, he didn't see all like the drugs and women and all the partying at the office. He knew, you know, he tried to, we tried to hide the drugs from him, you know, and, and, you know, did you list these perks on your job applications? It was well known. <laughs> Cause nowadays, Oh, you get free lunch. Well, we have uh, right. cocaine drugs and hookers. And, uh, yeah. It was pretty well known what was going on there. It was, and it was like, you know, everyone loved working there. Well, the, the two things that you said, we, we talked last time and, and I, I did reflect on if you had to start all over, you said, the, and someone else said it again, and it made me think of you more was if you lose everything, if you got fired from Corona, if you didn't have anything else, and you said this to me as well, you're like, go do sales, go find a product that you can do commission that you love. Yeah. And there's no limit to the amount that you can sell it. What's the Jordan Belfort challenge that all of us can improve in our sales? Like if we don't, have, you know, maybe they haven't bought your program yet, which we will tell people to check out. Uh, they haven't maybe watched all of your content yet. Uh, what is something they could do at home today to, to improve their sales skills? You kid on one thing, which is this idea that you liked I prepared myself and wrote a script, right? So I'm a big believer that like there's something called strategic preparation, you know, that you kind of want to know what you're going to say before you say it. So I think anyone, you know, no matter what you're trying to sell, you know, you want to sort of know what things you want to be saying to someone else, what they need to hear before you enter the encounter. You know, just kind of figure, let me wing it, right? The problem is, is that People who are not born closers don't even know what that is. They have no context. How do you improve if you don't intuitively know what to say? So what happens is with the straight line system is it actually teaches you what born closers do, whether they know it or not. Like I crack the clothes, like the straight line, if any great salesperson that goes through like, oh my God, exactly. That's, oh my God, that's, oh my God, oh my God. It's like, well, everything's an oh my God moment because it's not like I did something that was like, everyone was doing what I, like, it wasn't like this unique way of selling. Anyone who's succeeding at selling is using the straight line whether they know it or not. They have to be. You can't do it without it. You're just doing it intuitively. So the problem is there's very few intuitive people th at that level. So most people don't, aren't using the straight line. All great closers use the straight line, even if they have never learned it before. So the Jordan Belfort challenge would be maybe practicing at least for everyone out there writing a script or if you're going to be doing some type I of thing. I wouldn't do that because I mean, you your script's going to be worthless. Now, if you're trying to write a script, you need to study the straight line. But there's enough stuff out there for free. You're not going to buy it from me if you don't want to. You buy it. People buy it after they already know it and they say, wow, that's what it was. was that was the free stuff. Then, then, I'll, then I'll definitely, you know, you're going to read or study, look at the videos and they'll explain at least what you need to be doing, what you need to be saying, how you need to be saying. It tells you what to do. And then from there, then you could start writing the script. So how what are you going to write? You write the wrong thing. Two things from that I wanted to, to wrap on. I guess I'm curious for jail, like how you grew or what, like you, I know I've watched a video talked about your hardest day the day you got to go to jail. I guess, how did jail affect you or change you? Because I know that's, that is where you wrote the book too. You said Tommy Chung <laughs> inspired you. That just doesn't even sound real. I know, he was my bunkmate. It's amazing. You know, life is just, a, uh, I guess, you know, everybody has these things happen to them. I think the problem with most people is they don't take advantage of the opportunities that come along. Like many other people were in jail with Tommy Chong and Tommy Chong probably told 50 different people to write a book. I'm the only one who did, or let's really did it the right way, really put their effort into it. So I think, yeah, I mean, I think we go through life and opportunities, we run into people and these things present themselves, but most people don't act on things. And because of that, the opportunities pass them by. That's the difference. 
That's strong, man. I, I was wondering, because I'm thinking for a lot of people out there, maybe if they're really young or wherever they are in life, like, I want to live a similar kind of life as you. And not necessarily the partying and drugs, and maybe that's something that they're not. But I think what it is, is you did an interesting job of putting yourself in places to succeed. And not only did you just get there and stop, you said, hey, you know, the stock thing, it's going good, but can it go better? And I think you were all, you were kind of keep looking to improve, which I think is really commendable. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, it's always about like, you know, what's the next level up? What's the next level? I'm not one to just rest on my laurels. When I, something's working, I want to re- keep what's doing well and then even try to improve on it, incremental improvement, you know? I, I'm a big believer in that, that, you know, you work really hard and you don't get the result. And then you work really hard, you don't get the result. And you work really hard, you don't get the result. And that happens. Like when you're trying to crack the code for a business, then suddenly the one last piece of the puzzle comes into place and boom, it just like skyrockets. That's happened to me every time in my life that I've really succeeded wildly. When I've had these big successes, it's almost like you weren't quite there. You're almost in, then one little pivot and boom, everything makes sense. And most people give up right before that, you're thinking? Yeah, well, they settle for and mm. they, they settle for what's not the best way. And they try, they think that software, great software will not make a bad idea work. It makes a great idea even better. Crack the code manually first, then worry about squeezing out every percentage point through software. So, man, we got about five minutes. I think this is the part I'm I'm curious. You go to jail, lose everything, or you give up, you have to pay everything. Where are you today? In what sense? I was curious, like, where your business is at today. Like, how did you rebuild and, like, how do you make money and and so forth? Step by step. I mean, you know, I started, right? And then I first wrote this book, and the book became this big um, thing around the world. Then I became a speaker. Then everyone wanted me to start training their salespeople, so I started doing that. And then ultimately, I started using when the brand just became so pervasive around the world, I saw an opportunity to really go one step back and start actually recruiting salespeople. So most companies I go to, you know, I was training their sales forces for many years. They have massive turnover. And I saw a real problem in the way sales were being recruited and trained and hired and so forth because they were taking people who were not, they were like not vetting them correctly. And most companies just have a, they don't have a brand. I guess, yes, if you're Facebook or Google, yeah, every salesman wants to work for you. But if you're the average really successful, so many really successful companies that you just never heard of, right? So they have trouble attracting great talent. But if I put an ad out for myself saying, I'm looking to hire salespeople, I will get 8,000 responses on an ad that anyone else would get 10 on. And I'll get the best people. So what I do is I use my brand to attract really great, untrained salespeople, right? Untrained, but naturally talented people. And then I will find them the perfect job at a really great company. But before I deliver them, I'll put them through a two-week boot camp and I'll train them to a razor's edge so they know how to sell that product. So when they show up to the company, they're ready to hit the ground running. And what happens is when you do it that way, number one, let's say someone says, I'd like to hire 50 people, I'll hire 80 knowing that during the two weeks, I'll let 30 go. So the attrition happens before they even hit the company's payroll. So now I have these 50 people that have been trained and also the attrition's already happened. I live with these 50 amazingly motivated, pre-disaster salespeople trained to a razor's edge to a company, and the results the company gets are staggering, like virtually no attrition, massive increase in performance, and all that stuff that was causing companies to not be able to scale on the sales side. It's now resolved. You know, it's like all outsourced menu deliver. It's just a very elegant way. I think there's stuff we can learn from everyone. 
And, and that's the part I really appreciate about your story from the good you did as well as some of the things that were not good. One thing I admire about you that I thought was really fascinating when I came to visit you a few days ago, you text clients. And I think when people imagine someone that as they get bigger and they're like, they don't do the dirty work, and they're not dirty in a bad way, but they don't do the, the low level work. They don't check in with the customer and stuff like that. And I saw you texting customers like, hey, how are the people I sent you? And I really admired that. I appreciated that you're still yeah, like- Well, no, I mean, it's not just that. It's the more I enjoy what I do. I get almost an irrational amount of pleasure from taking young kids and turning them into killer salespeople and then watching them succeed. It's more valuable to me than money. I make tons of money doing it, but so I love just, the, I love hearing those positive stories every single day and they come in every single day. And um, it's turned out to be a game changer in the sales recruiting industry. And it interrupts the cycle of attrition and it's just a much better way. I guess the question and the final question I was wondering is that eulogy wise or how, how do you want to be remembered? I don't know where that came to me, but I'm curious what, what you want to be thought of as. Is it the parent? Is it the teacher? Is it the movie? The ultimate redemption story. That was great. Well, that's a wrap. I hope you love the episode. If you did, go check out Jordan's show, The Wolf Den on YouTube or Apple Podcasts. Jordan actually interviewed me two weeks ago, and you can find that episode by searching Noah Kagan, Jordan Belfort on YouTube. As well, Jordan has a recruiting company where he teaches his straight line sales consulting and brings you fully trained salespeople for your business. Check them out. And if you haven't seen the movie yet, do yourself. It's really, really interesting. Wolf of Wall Street. Next, text a friend you love them. Hey, amigo, let's go start a meats and seafood company. I don't know where you come up with stuff. Before you go, don't email me, but tweet at me, at Noah Kagan. Let me know about what you think of the episode or other things that are just on your mind. I'll probably listen. Also, remember to go to subscribe to my email list. I put my best tips into a single short email every week, and I hook up exclusive content to those gorgeous email subscribers. It's sendfox.com slash Noah. And speaking of SendFox, the number one piece of advice I give to people that want to start a business but have no idea is to start a newsletter around any topic that you're passionate about. Don't wait a second more. Literally, right now, you can create your own email list, start building your tribe, and eat from your garden in years to come. Go to sendfox.com. It's completely free and start today. Finally, a couple of shout outs to my amazing team. We're all team made. It's not man made or woman made, it's a team made thing. Special thanks to Jason at podcasttech.com. You guys can hire him for your podcast, but please don't because I need him for hours. Thank you to David Mitchell, Jeremy, and Michael, and Jen from the Dork team for all the magic you do. And finally, a shout out to Samantha Candanero. It's hard to see your last name, but Samantha Candanero, who serves our customers like royalty. I love that. At Send Fox and King Sumo. Just want to let you know you're doing phenomenal. Have a delightful day. What's your favorite day of the week? <laughs>